0: Our scripture reading this morning, like last last week, is taken from Luke, this time chapter 18. It's another parable, uh, as was last week's scripture reading. Luke 18, verses 1 to 8 is our scripture reading, and our sermon passage is taken from 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 40. I wanted to finish us out with chapter 19 close that out and then we'd have a nice breaking point and pick back up in chapter 20 uh, in July. And yet the last three verses of chapter 19 go very well with the following uh, passage rather than its preceding passage. and so we're just looking at the first 40 verses of chapter 19, which I think is I think that's adequate. It's a, a sufficient uh, portion of God's word for us uh, to hear read to us and to consider this morning. So again Luke 18:1 to8. As our scripture reading and our sermon passage is 2 Samuel 19, verses 1 to 40, Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. Please give your full attention to God's word as you now have the privilege of hearing it read to you. Luke 18, 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who... And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Now turning to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 19, verses 1-40. to It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that, that day the, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise. Arise. Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. He swayed the heart of all the men of Judah, as one man, so that they sent the word sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gogal to meet the king, and bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David, and with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day came back to the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, "'Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth?' He answered, "'My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, "'I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king.' "'For your servant is lame. "'He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. "'My lord the king is like the angel of God. "'Do therefore what seems good to you. "'For all my father's house were but men doomed to death "'before my lord the king. "'But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. "'What further right have I then to cry to the king?' "'And the king said to him, "'Why speak any more of your affairs? "'I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land.' "'And Mephibosheth said to the king, "'Oh, let him take it all.' Since my lord the king has come safely home. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with food while he stayed in Mahanaim, for he was very, a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. Am I, I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then, sh- then should your servant be added, an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother." But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, All the people of Judah and also half of the people of Israel brought the king on his way. This ends the reading of God's most holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and king, as we read these portions of scripture, these portions of your word, we are reminded of the timelessness of them and how what is Ancient history to many, if not most, in our world and in our society, Lord, is extremely relevant to us today. Your word teaches us about your servants of old, but more importantly, your word teaches us about you and about your faithfulness to your people. And so, this morning, as we have read about how you are bringing about the return of King David to Jerusalem. We are reminded that you are almighty God, that you are the true king of Israel, that David is simply a vicegerent, that he simply holds the place for the king. Please give us wisdom now as we consider your word. Please bless the one who preaches and the ones who hear. May you be glorified, O Lord, as your word is proclaimed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you will remember, of course, the beginning of our passage this morning reminds us that at the end of last week's passage, David was in deep mourning over the news that his son Absalom had died. Now, David had every reason to despise his son. He had every reason to be glad about his death, but instead he cried out in grief, Oh, my son Absalom, my son. That's understandable. It's understandable that he was aggrieved, that he was sorrowful, but he is the rightfully anointed king, and there's no time for him to grieve at this point because his people need him. David had been under attack, his kingdom had been under attack, and yes, it happened to be his own son, and we can look at it from the position of a great distance of history and uh, great distance of, of, of space, we could be somewhat more objective. We could say, well, it was a good thing that Absalom was ultimately killed because he would have never stopped trying to uh, throw out his father as king. And yet for David, this was a deep, deep tragedy. Now, generally speaking, it's unhealthy and even dangerous to try to ignore your grief, to try to suppress. Your grief when you've suffered the loss of someone you love. We've probably seen this from time to time. We maybe have done it to ourselves. We've tried to, to push the grief down. We've tried to go on about our lives as if nothing has happened. It's a very dangerous thing. Everyone grieves differently in some ways, but everyone has to grieve following a tragedy. Everyone has to find constructive ways of letting their grief come out, or they will, it will, grief will come out in destructive ways that are harmful to the person and those around them. Unfortunately for David, the kingdom over which he rules is in a fragile, uh, weakened state following the rebellion of Absalom. It is in danger of collapsing from within or being attacked from the outside. And so David must return to Jerusalem. He must reestablish his kingship and restore order. And that's exactly what Joab is concerned about. But on his return journey, David is met by men who had betrayed him. He's met by one whom he'd been told had betrayed him, but who actually had not. And David is confronted with the challenge of whether or not to pardon these men before he even arrives back upon the throne. But first... David's got to rise out of his grief for his son. And Joab decides that he is the person to pull David out of his grief. He gives David a swift rhetorical kick to the seat of the pants. But even though David does as Joab wants, he resents Joab for it. And so the author of 2 Samuel presents David to us in the fullness of his humanity a man who is overcome with sorrow and anger and vengefulness, even as he is being returned to his throne by the mighty hand of God. The once and soon to be restored king of all Israel, David, cannot be mistaken for the forever king of Israel, Jesus Christ, whose throne will never be destroyed. David, at the very best, at his very best moments, he merely points forward, the king who would ultimately take his place. At his worst moments, David looks an awful lot like you and me. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. David pardoned his enemies for political purposes. God pardons his enemies because he loves us. Again, David pardoned his enemies for political purposes. God pardons his his enemies, because he loves us. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first, his grief he will not forget. The second, the king is come again indeed. And the third, what does the king command? Again, his grief he will not forget. The king is come again indeed. And what does the king command? So, first, His grief he will not forget. We've already seen that David continued in his grief over Absalom after learning of his death at the end of chapter 18. He had asked the men to spare his son's life, but they did not do so. Now, in one sense, and in an ultimate sense, of course, God is the one who did not spare Absalom's life. The the freak, quote-unquote, accident, the result of which Absalom was captured was... He rode his mule into the crook of a tree branch, and his head was caught in it. Clearly, the Lord intended justice for Absalom because of what he had done. But David doesn't see it that way. David is not happy. David is in deep grief, but he's also angry. He's angry at the men who thrust spears into his son. But the king's grief was overshadowing the fact that his men had won a great victory over a vastly superior force. And this should have been celebrated in the city of Mahanaim upon the return of his army to it. He should have been standing in the gate waiting for his men to get back, waiting to cheer them on, to welcome them back into the city. And yet by the time his men returned, David has gone to his chambers. And so verse 3 says that the people, meaning the soldiers who were returning from the battle at the forest of Ephraim, the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who were ashamed when they flee in battle. They came back tiptoeing, as it were, so that they would not be detected. In other words, rather than turning, returning as victors, David's army was returning like men who had fled a battle in cowardice. There would be time to grieve another day. David would not soon forget the loss of his son. But today, his people needed their king. When he was needed most by his people, David was hiding in his chambers. News reached Joab immediately upon the return, his return to Mahanaim. And so Joab went directly to the king's house. And prior to Joab's entry, David had just been crying out for his son. He'd been saying, you have... Joab enters and says, You have today covered with shame the faces of all of your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Now we can empathize with David and his grief and yet at the same time recognize that Joab is exactly right. We can empathize. With the law enforcement officers, the sheriff's deputies who waited outside the school, we can empathize with the fact that they might have feared for their lives rather than entering Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. But that doesn't mean that we have to agree with their actions. David was wrong in not welcoming his people back. And Joab is right The men who were returning to the city were the faithful few who had stood by David for many years and who were so concerned for him that they had refused to let him lead them into battle. They loved David. And David wouldn't even go out to them and congratulate them on their victory. And so Joab continues, Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now nobody likes to be spoken in this manner, spoken to in this manner. Certainly not in the middle of grief. This is not a tactic that I would endorse that we use with one another on a regular basis. And Joab's approach here, it's not appropriate in all circumstances, but Joab understands just how dire the situation is. And so he enlightens David in verse 7, Now therefore arise, go, and speak kindly to your servants, for, for I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And Joab knows about the travails and the struggles, the trials that David has been through from his youth until now. And Joab is saying it will be far worse for you than in those days when Saul was pursuing you and you were constantly on the run under the threat of being murdered. David's grief will remain, but his men will not. And it's not because they are disloyal to David, it's the opposite. David is being disloyal to his men. They stood by David when everyone else went out after Absalom. Joab is right. Verse 8 says, Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now David has done just as he was told, just as Absalom commanded him. But as Joyce Baldwin asks in her commentary on 2 Samuel, how is he taking the high-handed attack of the general? And in the next section we learn that he did not take it very well at all. And that brings us to The second section of the sermon, the king is come again indeed. The last part of verse 8 says, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. These are the men who should have been ashamed as they stole back into their houses, into their towns. Not the men of Judah who had loyally fought for David. But these men go back to their homes and they begin to reflect on what they had done. And in verse 9, they recount a little bit of David's history. The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies, he saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. They don't exactly mention the fact that they were in part responsible for David fleeing the land. They and the armies that they were a part of drove David and his people from out of the land. But it's dawning upon them now that Absalom is dead that David is going to come back into the land. He's going to come back to the throne. He's going to resume power. And so the people in their various tribes in Israel argued among each other, asking, now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? They were, as it turns out, on the wrong side of history, as people today love to proclaim before the history has even been written. But they were on the wrong side of it, and they're starting to realize it. They lost, and they lost big time. And so the tribes of Israel realized that they had better warmly welcome David back to Jerusalem as their king, or they would face consequences. Now without explicitly mentioning it, the author author indirectly indicates that Israel's invitation reached David. When David sent out a message by the priests Zadok and Abiathar in verse 11, saying to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? David is still across the Jordan River to the east. He's still in the city of Mahanaim. He's just received word from Israel that they want him to come back. They welcome him back to be their king. Perhaps included in that message was some form of apology for their fighting on behalf of Absalom. But David has heard nothing from Judah. Israel is about to put Judah to shame. And David isn't afraid to use shame to motivate them. He guilt trips them. He says in verse 12, You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Guilt, guilt trips, I do not recommend them. They are effective in getting done what you want done. But they too have unintended lasting consequences. And then in verse thirteen, David tells the priests, and say to Amasa, Are you not bone, uh, not my bone and my flesh? Gods do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on, in place of Joab. Now who was Amasa? Well, you remember that Amasa had been set over the army of Israel by Absalom, taking Joab's place. Joab did not defect from David and follow Absalom. And so Absalom needed a top general. He puts Amasa in Joab's place. And now David is continuing Absalom's policy. He's demoting Joab by putting uh, Amasa in his place. And so regarding the question of how David took Joab's verbal attack on him, the answer is not well. David was not happy. And this is part of the vengeance that he decided to take on Joab for his unkind words. And also probably because... He had heard of what Joab did to his son, taking vengeance for the death of Absalom. But David got his wish. Verse 14 says that he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah, and they sent word to him to return with all of his household. And verse 15 says, So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now as an aside here, almost every time the Jordan River is mentioned in the Old Testament, something significant is taking place, and this time is no different. David, when he went east of the Jordan River, he would have crossed the Jordan at the fords near Jericho when he was fleeing Absalom. And verse 15 indicates that that's where he's crossing back into Israel. Gilgal, where Judah came to meet the king, is very close to Jericho. And the men of Judah could get to the Jordan River very easily from there. Of course, this crossing is the crossing that Israel first used when she was crossing into the Promised Land, in Joshua. And it's there at the Forge of Jericho, near Jericho, that these men came across. It's there that Jesus went down to be baptized. It's a significant place, location in the Bible. And it's there that David will issue a series of pardons for those who had betrayed him. And that brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, what does the king command? The first person to come to him is Shimei, the son of Gerah, a Benjaminite. Who is Shimei? We're having some people, a cast of characters come back from uh, previous chapters. He, you'll remember, just a few chapters ago, had cursed David. He had thrown stones and flung dust at David when David was fleeing Jerusalem. And now he, along with 1,000 men of the tribe of Benjamin, came down to the Jordan River to grovel at David's feet. The tables have turned, indeed, haven't they? Next up is Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul. We read in verse 17 rather, that he, along with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan to come before the king. They wade the Jordan, they meet David on the eastern banks of the river, and verse 18 says that may bowed on the ground before David and said, beginning in verse 19, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all of the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. And Abishai, who wanted to put Shimei to death back in chapter 16, when he cursed David as David was fleeing, does not believe this show of remorse. He tells David in verse 21 of our chapter, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Now, before we get to to David's decision about the fate of Shimei, I want to consider Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who comes before David, beginning in verse 24. And contrast him, Mephibosheth, with Shimei and Zeba. Verse 24 says that he came down to meet the king, meaning that he left Jerusalem and he came down to the crossing of the Jordan River where David was. And we read there that he had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Unlike Shimei and Ziba, Mephibosheth had been in mourning the entire time that David had been in exile. His appearance demonstrates this. Mephibosheth is sorrowful over what has happened. Now remember that Ziba had told David in chapter 16 verse 3 that Mephibosheth had remained in Jerusalem and had said today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. It didn't make sense then, it makes even less sense now. Why would Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, think that when Absalom comes in to be the new king that Mephibosheth is going to get it all back? for some reason... Back in chapter 16, David took Ziba at his word, along with the food and supplies that Ziba gave him, and he regarded Ziba as an ally. But we don't find out until our passage today that Ziba didn't actually go with David into exile. He remained in Jerusalem. And so he must have contrived a reason or a way to remain in Jerusalem while others loyal to David fled with him. Possibly he wanted to take advantage of the fact that David had just given him everything that belonged to Mephibosheth. And so David asked Mephibosheth in verse 25 of our passage, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And now David finds out that Ziba had lied to him. My lord, O my king, my servant Ziba deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. Mephibosheth intends to ride out with the king. He sent Ziba down to the stables to saddle a donkey for him so he could go with David. For your servant is lame, Mephibosheth reminds David. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Now, this is a moving speech, but David seems strangely unmoved by it. But perhaps it's just awkward, given the fact that David already has promised everything that Mephibosheth had to be Zeba's. And in response to Mephibosheth, David says in verse 29, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Zeba shall divide the land. Now, we aren't told what was Zeba's reaction to David's cutting half of what he thought was his But Mephibosheth's reaction in verse 30 proves the sincerity of what he had said prior to this. Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Mephibosheth proves himself to be a true and loyal servant of the king. He's not interested in his property, he's not interested in the land that rightfully was his. He gives it up. He'd rather sit at the table of the king, eat scraps from that table than be off away from his king. A brief side note to say that the New American Standard probably has it right when it translates verse 25 to say, and it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king. Most English translations say came to Jerusalem, but the Hebrew doesn't have a preposition there at all. And given that verse 24 says Mephibosheth came down to meet the king, meaning that he came off of Uh, the mountain that Jerusalem was on, he came down to the Jordan River Valley, which was very, very low. And he was there with Ziba when all of this happened. He must have gone to the Jordan. And so he went to all of this trouble, this lame and crippled man, to greet his king before he had a chance to enter back into the land. But a special note is Mephibosheth's reaction to David splitting what rightly belonged to him, giving half to Ziba, who had slandered him. Mephibosheth is overjoyed that David is returning. His lot, his portion, is with David. Ziba can have all the rest. Mephibosheth is not interested in it, if it means that he gets to be with his king. Well, the next person to arrive at the Jordan River is Barzillai, the Gileadite, who came from Rogalim. He isn't coming to receive a pardon. He simply wishes to say farewell to the king, but David invites Barzillai to come to Jerusalem with him as a way to show gratitude to Barzillai for his hospitality, the care that he had given to David and his people. And Barzillai graciously declines David's invitation. This is, this is a, a, a master class in how to, to graciously give your regrets to a person who is inviting you over. Barzillai does it with great grace. He offers in his place uh, Chimham who, according to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is Barzillai's son. And David agrees to take Chimham with him. And Barzillai returns to his own home, and David sets off for Jerusalem by way of Gilgal. I said earlier that we would return to David's decision about the fate of Shimei. And that time has now arrived. In some ways, David is like the grumpy judge in Jesus' parable of the persistent widow, isn't he? The only person that David is cordial to, actually cordial to, is Barzillai, which is understandable in one sense, given the the fact that Barzillai and others had taken care of him during his exile. And so David tells Shimei in verse 23 that he would not be put to death, and he gave him his oath. He offers a compromise to Ziba and Mephibosheth. He accepts Barzillai's offer to take Chimham back with him to Jerusalem. And his decisions in some of these cases were merely what was expedient. In others, what was pragmatic. And that was precisely the case with the judge and the widow in Jesus' parable. Now, the parable is about the importance of prayer and how they ought always to pray and not lose heart. But it was also, that parable was also, and more importantly, an argument from the lesser to the greater. If an obstinate judge who really has no care at all about this poor widow will give justice to that widow after she has begged him, only after she has begged him and threatens to beg him more, just because he doesn't want to be bothered by her, how much more will God hear the prayers of his elect and give them justice? Unlike the judge in the parable, God delights to hear the prayers of his people. Unlike David, whose judgments are often flawed and politically expedient, David's greater son, Jesus, is wise and loving and never makes mistakes in his decisions. David's decision to to spare Shimei would would have to be rectified later by David's son Solomon. After David had died and Solomon became king, king in his place, Solomon had to have Shimei killed after Shimei disobeyed Solomon's commands. And so David's decision not to exact justice upon Shimei resulted in Solomon having to clean up the mess later on. Jesus never has to second-guess his decisions. Jesus never has to have anybody come along after the fact and make things right that he had made it wrong. Because in everything, Jesus obeyed the will of his Father. David shows that even the best human rulers are flawed and often make poor decisions. David highlights just how good Jesus is. Now, we don't have to make David look bad in order to make Jesus look good, but it's important to remind ourselves that David wasn't the savior of Israel. Nor is any king or president the savior of their country. We look, brothers and sisters, we look to human rulers, we look to human authority all of the time as the answer to our problems. Look no further than what is going on in the aftermath of what took place in Uvalde. We look to human authority to fix the problem, and we can't expect them to fix it. They won't. These people need the healing balm of the gospel. Our country needs the gospel. And the church has to be faithful in her proclamation of it. Because human rulers will fail just as David did. Unlike David's decisions, the decisions of Jesus will never have to be done over or corrected And that is good news for us. Why is it good news? It means that if you belong to Jesus, if you truly believe in Him, trusting in Him alone for your salvation, nothing can ever change that. Nothing can undo it. And Jesus is not going to change His mind about it. You're not going to do something further down the line in your life that's going to make Jesus say, Oops, I guess I made a mistake with so and so. You're not going to do it. You can't. Because he's not like a human king. He's not like a human judge. He hears the cries of his people. He loves his people. He delights in giving his children justice. He hears us. And he came in order for you and me to be pardoned for our sins. He will execute justice on your behalf. In fact, justice has already been executed because Jesus himself was executed so that the justice of God for our sins would be satisfied. He has done it. And it is finished. And you can't add another thing to it. You can't. And so what do you do? You rest. You rest from your labors in the finished completed work of jesus christ you trust that what he has said the decisions that he made and what he has done that they are effective for all time and that nothing can change them because of his love for you and me the father's wrath for our sins was poured out on his son so that we can live with him in his kingdom for the rest of eternity Because the Father has loved you, brothers and sisters, you have been pardoned. And it's not a pardon that can or ever will be undone. Because God is perfect in all of His decisions. And His justice is just, it is right, it is perfect. It never can be undone, nor does it ever need to be undone. And that is good good news for you and me. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we truly are thankful that justice has been served, that the punishment that we deserve for our sins, that it has been executed, that it has been carried out. But at the same time, we rejoice in the fact that we have been pardoned. We've been covered by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he shed for us on the cross. We are thankful that he endured your wrath because of our sins. We are thankful that he was counted among the transgressors and that we have been counted among those who are righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been accounted as our own. pray, Lord, that you would remind us of our own imperfections, our own sinfulness, our own weaknesses and tendencies to disobey you. We pray that we would trust less in our own judgments and more and more in yours. We pray that we would trust you. And rest in the fact that you have pardoned us. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.